Hello and welcome back to Coffee with a Shot of Cynicism, the Gilmore Girls podcast. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Eleni. And this week we are discussing episode six of season five, Norman Mailer, I'm Pregnant, the second of three episodes in a row that take the title from a quote in the episode, as I pointed out last week, because it's the only way that I seem to be able to remember episode titles off the top of my head. Um, This episode has... Again, a lot of pop culture references that I, of course, researched and want to discuss with you and all of our listeners. Um, And before we do that, I wanted to bring up um, another Twitter thread about Gilmore Girls that I had bookmarked like last spring while we were on hiatus and forgot all about it until I was just scrolling through my Twitter bookmarks the other day and was like, we're doing it because otherwise I'm never going to remember. Um, so this tweet is from April 16th of 2022 from Anna Fitzpatrick, whose, um, handle is Banana Fitz. Very creative. Um, so she wrote just casually, Gilmore Girls is a fantasy about living in a walkable community. And I was like, okay, interesting. So then I read more and she's like, and so she kind of analyzes the way in which, um, cars and walking are conflated in Gilmore Girls, so she writes, cars are a frequent source of conflict on the show. Rory's car gets hit by a deer. Rory and Jess get into a car accident. Stars Hollow eventually has to install a traffic light. Cars take us out of the dreamy utopia of Stars Hollow and into the harsh ecosystems that is Chilton and Friday Night Dinners. Everything that Lorelai and Rory actually need is accessible within a 15-minute walk. Dean Dean gets Rory a car. He never understood her. Meanwhile, when Jess leaves town, how does Rory get to New York to visit him? That's right, baby, a train or maybe a bus. Yeah, it was a bus. <laughs> it's been a while since I've watched. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all she said. So I just thought it was interesting. Um, I never thought of it that way, like how cars kind of, re- what cars represent in Gilmore Girls. Do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I don't think it's that deep. I don't think it's that deep either. I just thought it was an interesting way to put it. <laughs> no, I mean, like as somebody who has lived in a small town. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, it's all fun and games until you like need to actually go somewhere. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's nice to be able to walk everywhere, but unfortunately, that's not how things work now. <laughs> no, and especially um, especially since we know the small town you lived in, and like most small towns, let's be real, are not cozy, are not as cozy and warm as Stars Hollow. So yeah, I mean, I think the point of the show is to make. The, the smaller the town, the cuter the premise of the show and, like, the more endearing the community that they create. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it would make sense if she has to take a car to go to Chilton because it's in Hartford and she doesn't live in Hartford. Um, her grandparents live in Hartford. You know what I mean? Like, um, she has to drive to Yale. I get it. <laughs> like, Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I like the idea of a walkable city. Mm-hmm. kind of what i live in now yeah i mean i don't i don't think she i don't think she meant it um as that deep either i'm pretty sure it was just like something she thought of off the top of her head as you know most people do on twitter um i just thought it was an interesting like especially the part where she wrote cars take us out of the dreamy utopia of stars hollow and into the harsh ecosystems that are chilton and friday night dinners because like obviously especially in the earlier seasons um you know stars hollow is in very much stark contrast to like to uh, to Hartford and it's to show the world that Lorelai wanted out of and I guess just 
I don't know, just how you think of like cars in that in that equation. But as you pointed out in our newsletter from uh, two weeks ago, um, there was a reason why you couldn't be an English major was because you don't get <laughs> you don't get symbolism, <laughs> or you don't not get what you, what did you say? You don't get not you can get symbol you don't get symbolism you don't get like what is it you said? I mean, some t- like I'm God. I I don't know if I've already given this example, but I'm the type of person. So in CGIP, so right after high school, I had an English teacher who wanted us to watch Fight Club and analyze it. Oh, God, yes. I remember you telling me this story. (laughs) I think I told you, but I don't know if I told the podcast people. Anyways, all that to say is that um, the opening credits are rolling and it's like producer, executive producer, writer, blah, blah, blah. And there's a blue background and she literally paused it 14 seconds into the movie to ask us why there was a blue background. Okay. And I was like, oh, no, bitch. <laughs> There's just a blue background. Like, it doesn't have to be complicated, you know? know. That's a bit so, much, like, especially since you haven't seen the rest of the movie yet. Like, you, you, I can't, I can't, you know, think about why the background in the beginning was blue if I don't know what's happening yet. But also, like, what if they just picked blue? Yeah. <laughs> what if the editor was like, fuck, black is too harsh, let's pick blue? You know, so I think sometimes for the purposes of the podcast, obviously we analyze the show. Um, but, you know, when I'm watching certain things or just thinking like just trying to enjoy mm-hmm. my mind doesn't necessarily go there. Yeah. I mean, I find when I was in CJAP, like most of the people who I was surrounded with were kind of like me and that like if there were not so much with like school assignments because like you know it was stuff you had to analyze for school was different from stuff you analyzed for pleasure and that's the that's the same in any in any scenario um Mm. but i remember like if there would been a book or or, um, most likely a book that um all of us had read and one person that's one person was like oh did you know that you know xyz is actually as actually like emblematic of this and like oh my god never thought of it that way like for you know english majors and book nerds it's uh <laughs> it's a common bonding experience of like oh i never thought of it that way but at the end of the day sometimes a spade is just a spade yeah i agree a spade is just a spade sometimes and also i just don't want to have to think about it <laughs> yeah um but interesting take to anna banana what was her name <laughs> anna banana <laughs> anna fitzpatrick anna Fitzpat- um, what was her twitter name her handle is banana fits Oh, I knew I wasn't making up the banana part. Jesus. Yeah. We'll call her Anna Banana. I'm sure she's fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about this episode. Yes. Norman Mailer, I'm pregnant. So the opening scene is chaotic and Luke's head is going to blow off. As is mine. Oh, my God. So there's there's moments like this, like like this opening scene where I'm like, there's such a mismatch. Yeah. And yet they still work. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have it any other way. Like I like that they're together. Yeah. But sometimes I'm like, how does he put up with her and how does she put up with him? Like in this in this scenario, it's definitely to showcase um how different they can be from each other and like you said, how much they still work and how much chemistry they still have. But all that all that this scene proves to me is that like Sometimes Lorelai's reliant, like, for example, Lorelai's reliance on her daughter's boyfriend to, you know, change the porch light or change the water bottle, as we 
as as we've seen before. Like, yeah, it's it's not it's not to me maybe the first time you watch it or casually watching it, but you know we don't watch that way as as you know, as you all know. Like to me, it's just laziness. Like it's not quirky, it's not cute, it's just lazy. Like I'm sorry, like I get it. You know, maybe it's hard for you to do that. You don't have a like not you know not to reduce women to women and men to men and gender roles and whatever but it's like maybe you don't have someone to help you do that whatever it is but like someone with Lorelai Gilmore's resourcefulness who's la who lasted on her own and had to figure out how to live as, in her own words as a 16 year old with a baby like I think she would have figured out a way if she had to to change the porch light so it's a matter of you could you you figured out a way to live without the porch light you didn't want to you didn't want to put the effort into getting it fixed yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily laziness. I just think she's like, why do I need a porch light? It's not like she's living in a really populous city where, like, she needs a light because somebody's going to murder her. Her next-door yeah. neighbor is literally Babette, you know? She's like, oh, whatever, the porch light's fine. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. So I think there's a difference between I don't want to do it mm-hmm. just because I don't need to do it and it doesn't bother me Yeah. versus, like, it's laziness and I'm relying on somebody else to do it. Because I have those things in my house, my apartment, too, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I don't need to do this. I live alone, and it doesn't bother me. Yeah, it's like, where does it rank on the priority list? Obviously, if it needed to be done, she would have figured out figured out a way to get it done. Yeah, and I think, like you said, she is a resourceful woman. So if it was something really, really important, I don't think she would have let it go on that long, right? Um, yeah. We saw it in earlier seasons. She took care of the termites. The fridge wasn't working. She's brought her car in. Like, it's not a matter of being resourceful or lazy. It's just a porch light is a porch light. She doesn't care. I also call bullshit on her claiming that the porch light has been out since Rory broke up with Dean the first time because Luke has clearly been to her house since then in the in the evening time and would have noticed the porch light was out. So I think she was just trying to rile him up at that point. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. And get her dig in at Jeff. Yeah, which is just like, again, you know, okay, whatever. Fix your own porch light. I don't care if he didn't fix it. <laughs> You're just mad because she d- got a dig in at Jess. Absolutely. <laughs> You're so funny. Um, yeah, but I think it's. I think it was a nice. Um, you know, it was a nice way to show the audience that we we're getting into the groove of the relationship, right? And even though they are very. Um, distinct characters with their own sets of uh, personality traits shall we say mm-hmm. um you know they still make it work and i also think it's 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 what we've been waiting for for so long yeah like just like a mundane like every day walking through the house being quirky together mm-hmm. like a little picture of domesticated bliss yeah, and I think it like especially it, it kind of it kind of turned like funny quirky at the end where she's just like oh yeah you know that happens and she puts a dish rag over top of the key stuck in the door like no one's gonna rob like no one's gonna rob you that's I think that's the 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 consensus here that that Lorelai realizes is that like the 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 odds of her house in quiet charming Stars Hollow getting burglarized is very low until yeah. it ha- until it happens obviously but obviously. Uh, you know, I think it's it was I think it just it, like you said it was to showcase their polar how they much they can be polar opposites and yet still work, still gel so well in other regards. For sure. Yes. Um. So after that piece of chaos, mm. we get Rory 
at school. Oops, sorry. We get Rory at school in the Yale Daily News office. Right. And I think this is the first um the first time this season, obviously, that she's in the Yale Daily News, this new um I guess for the show, this new set that they've had mm-hmm. to kind of well, they had it in season four, but in season five we're meant to think that she's actually part of the newspaper staff and now she's gonna be a writer there. And a lot of her scenes at Yale do take place the Yale Daily News. Right. So I think the show took an opportunity also to introduce some new characters, give them a few more lines, um, make them their own kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they gave us a hilarious um, storyline with Paris getting the religion beat <laughs> and harassing every single religious leader in Connecticut. Which I would like, I would have liked to seen a bit more of. <laughs> Honestly, though, I think they really did it so well because. Yeah. We're getting these snippets of her conversations on the phone. Mm-hmm. And we're like, that's so Paris, like the yeah. way she talks to them. And I'm almost, that's almost enough for me, you know, mm-hmm. where I'm like, she's just going to say what she's going to say. She doesn't care that you're a priest or a rabbi, um, you know, like she's going to do her. Yeah. And so I really, I liked hearing her side of it because I know, I also just know that if she was in front of them and we were seeing the whole scene, they wouldn't be able to get a word in edgewise anyways. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I'm just like, I kind of like this, seeing her do her thing, be a boss on the phone, yes. you know, tell people to keep their pagers on <laughs> during mass and shit, stealing flip-flops from an iman like what the fuck Paris (laughs) (laughs) you know but um I kind of liked seeing her I don't know I almost feel like she's back to her old self after that season four debacle with her being so out of character and getting with a professor Mm -hmm. I feel like the Chilton Paris is sort of sort of coming out now yeah, like I w- what's his name? Uh, the life coach Terry, the life coach is that his name. Terrence. Terrence. Okay, yeah, Terrence. <laughs> um, as well, Terrence reappears uh later on in season five. Um, but I I think the you know the new and improved Paris that we were supposedly met at the beginning of season four, uh, she died. Yeah, it's it clearly wasn't gonna work long term. No, she's dead. Like, it was really easy to say, like, this is my craft corner with my macaroni art and shit. But that wasn't going to last very long. No, and I think, that's a, I think that's a vital point about, like, band-aids for, for mental health in general. Like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can do all the crafts and scrapbooking and adult coloring books you want. But at the end of the day, <laughs> mental illness is mental illness. Yeah, and I think also it just speaks to people being who they are. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can change certain parts of yourself, but I don't think you can change yourself fundamentally, right? Exactly. Um, Paris is just an intense person. That's who she is. And no amount of super glue and, like, crafts is going to take that away from her. I mean, how she channels that might change throughout the years, mm-hmm. but that's a vital part of her personality. That's so the fact that we didn't have that last year because she was kind of lost and um you know sleeping with a 65 year old i'm just like i'm so glad to have her back the way we met her mm-hmm. this driven and ambitious person and like by the way she got over asher real quick 
Oh, absolutely. And I'm so happy. Like, I don't care. But I think it was just such a breath of fresh air to be able to see her, like, back in her element of busting balls and, like, going after the assignment no matter what, right? All that came to mind when you were just talking was, this is not May-December. This is May-Ming Dynasty. Yeah. She's fucking intense, guys. (laughs) So, I don't know. I really enjoyed seeing Paris again. Um... And I think it just makes me even more confused about what they were doing last year. Yeah. And I I like to think that the writers kind of had a meeting and were like, guys, it didn't work. You know, we love Paris for a reason. Let's get back to it. Yeah, I think that's what it was, too. Like, they think they were trying to explore, like, the same kind of, and they're trying to explore the same kind of character growth and development in Rory with Paris just differently. And they're like, oh, well, what if, you know, because of her turbulent childhood and upbringing like she uh, you know seeks love and affection from a from a school from like one of her professors and you know I think we've talked this to death in terms of like in 2004 was or 2003 whenever it first started would have been very different the approach to a professor sleeping with a student just culturally but um I think it, yeah, like you said, I'm pretty sure the writers were like, hey, we tried that. It didn't work. Let's scrap it and move on. Because very early on in season five, they killed off Asher. So I think it was clear that they weren't going to keep that that storyline long term. Yeah, and I think it just goes to show, like, there's a reason. Don't try and do too much with your characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's easy for me to say. But, <laughs> I mean, you had three good years of people, great feedback from audiences that love these characters the way they were. Yeah. And I think if you try and screw that up, you try and mess with that too much, um, you're going to lose people along the way. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's one thing to have a weird plot plot or storyline, whatever. But to change the character so fundamentally, I think, is a big mistake mm-hmm. that a lot of shows do just because they think it'll give the character a new element. Yeah. But when you grow up watching shows like this and you've been through three, four seasons with these characters, it's so noticeable. Yeah. And it's enough to drive you nuts. And you're like, what are you doing? I think that's so, why, especially now, you know, retrospect, retroactively, people look back and they're like, you know, Lane Kim was just completely destroyed as a character. And we will get into that again in season six and seven, especially with what happens to Lane. But. We've already, we've, you know, inspe- but when you were saying that when they change a character so fundamentally, I don't know if, I don't know if they, if they really changed Lane in particular, but that's what comes to mind. Like, they could have written, maybe they didn't change her, but they could have definitely written it better and differently. Yeah, for sure. Um, My favorite well, Paris moment in this episode, though, is when, after she's, like, attacked Rory, saying, like, I had this dream where blah, 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 about the religion beat, and, you know, Rory's like, hey, what? what stop talk, like go away and then when paris actually gets the religion beat she's like oh okay as if like she's like real subtle we do as if we didn't just see you have a freaking meltdown about it five minutes ago yeah you're not fooling anyone paris <laughs> yeah um so rory gets the features article and she starts pitching a bunch of her ideas to doyle and even though this is 2004, I could already tell you a downloading story is going to be a dud. 
Yeah, because I feel like in 2004, people didn't really want to hear it. They were they wanted to like stick their heads in the sand and be like, well, downloading is not destroying the music industry. Like, well, let's okay. be honest, it wasn't. It wasn't, and I think it kind of, I don't, and I think without like, you know, whatever it was, like LimeWire and what was the one before that, Napster. Napster. I think with. I think without without you know services like that and online downloading that really boomed in the 2000s, I don't think, in my opinion, we would have gotten to where we are today with music streaming. Oh, which, absolutely not. Which is a legal alternative to downloading music. I know I'm sure there's I'm sure there's still people who download music instead of streaming because for whatever reasons, but I think streaming music became just like. A legal, a legal version of downloading music illegally. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I think, um, I think this is the first episode that we get to see Rory's anxieties playing out. Okay, interesting. Tell me more. Yeah. So, you know, she's the first, the first scene that we see with her in the newsroom. Doyle's talking about how Glenn, this new character that they've introduced. Well, we had him last season, but. He gets more airtime this season. I was going to say, he's not new. They went to friggin' spring break with him. No, I know. He's not new. But, I mean, I feel like in season five, they really use him a lot more. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I remember him yelling at Paris for driving like a maniac. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So, we find out that Glenn got picked up from the New York Times, his article. And he starts, like, name dropping, like, Maureen Dowd. You're like, okay, Glenn, take it easy. But, um, Rory has this moment where she calls her mother and she's like, I'm so behind. Right. Like, I didn't do anything for my future this summer, which she's not wrong, by the way. She didn't do anything for her future. She ran away from her boyfriend wow. uh, and went to Europe on her grandmother's dime. Mm-hmm. So not to say that that's a bad thing, but, you know, she's feeling all this anxiety and all this pressure. And I think Lorelai's reaction is really telling. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, so you'll catch up. You always catch up. You're worried. Yeah. You catch up. Mm-hmm. Like, Sometimes you can just like say not that. <laughs> like sometimes you can empathize without trying to be a cheerleader, which I think is more damaging in the long run. Yeah. Because then those unrealistic expectations come up again where you're like, well, my mom thinks I can do it and she knows I can do it. So I, I have to prove her right. You know what I mean? I feel like this is a very true to life representation of how this this conversation would go down with my mother. And that's why I'm like triggered right now. <laughs> yeah. In terms of like, obviously, I think in terms I think when it's a parent, especially a mother, you, you don't you, you don't usually look to them to say to like sympathize and or empathize in a realistic way that they are. They're there to they, they're there to be. I can't even speak today. What else is new? Like they're there to be the cheerleader. They have always that's always what they've done in these in these situations so it's not you know it's not out of the ordinary for them to do that but like you said it's it's damaging in the long run because and i don't think it's necessarily because they like it then leads someone like roy to think like oh well i can do it it's more just like just sets up false and unrealistic expectations for the person it's like okay well you know just because i didn't that just because i i didn't succeed at that and that's what i've always been working towards like that doesn't mean i'm not or I, I, my personhood has no worth, you know? Yeah, I mean, I also think it's a little different in Lorelai's case and Rory's case. Um, you know, because Lorelai brings up Chilton and she's like, well, you were behind at Chilton and you caught up and you're a valedictorian. And 
I think that's a little bit of naivete on Lorelai's Yeah, it's end. not the same thing. Well, yeah, I think it's not the same thing. It's a whole other ball game in college, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she's also talking about, she's not exactly talking about being behind in classes. She's talking about being behind in life, um, <laughs> you know, to get a job uh, in the future. And not that I think that she should be focusing on that now, like as a sophomore. I still think it's too early. But those are real life anxieties. <laughs> And yeah. you saying, like, oh, you're going to catch up. You're Rory. You're great. I don't think that's helping. No. You know? And I don't think it's what a person needs to hear. No. And if, like, if I may, you know, draw parallels or compare Rory, um, like, Rory's anxieties over being, quote, unquote, behind, like, in this in this way to, to like, maybe where I was at her age and, like, at her her point in school like I like when I started writing like freelance on the side when I was in university it was like my intention was less towards um like feeling behind and like oh I, sh- I need to if I if I want to do this I need to start now like that was that was kind of part of it but like it wasn't the driving force the driving force was um like I f- I, I feel cluttered when I don't like when, when I don't have writing as an artistic and creative outlet and like that's why I really felt the need to seek out like freelance writing jobs where I could you know express myself in that way it was more I guess it was more for artistic and creative expression than it was for you know some kind of end end life career goal but what Rory like what Rory is experiencing in this in this situation is normal for that point and especially if, as for someone who's studying to be a journalist and is surrounded by people who like Glenn. And I think Glenn, I think Glenn getting an article picked up by the New York Times was kind of a fluke. Like, okay, it could he's like, it's not even the best thing that I was that I that I that I've written. And I think I think that's what that's what it symbolizes is that like that that kind of thing can happen to anybody. It's not necessarily a, a mark on talent or whatever it is. Like, not to say that Glenn or Rory or anyone isn't talented, but it's like you shouldn't like you shouldn't measure your 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 life and your goals and your definition of success like on things like that i think i think even in a newsroom everyone is more or less on their own path even though they're working in the same place and i don't know to me it's just it like it's it happens everywhere it happens in all different kinds of fields not just you know journalism and writing but especially in the especially in the arts where it's like you can't help but compare yourself to those around you even though it's not conductive or you know at all so that's all that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I obviously sympathize with Rory. Mm-hmm. Like I've been there. I felt anxiety. I felt behind. I felt that dread of like, oh my god, what am I doing? Yeah. But at the same time, I'm just like you know, it's kind of weird to think that she didn't know that she can mm-hmm. get an internship. You know? Yeah. Yeah, there's some level of naivete in both Lorelai and Rory in this case, where it's like the same kind of the same kind of naivete when like in season two, when Paris tells her like, oh, well, I've been volunteering since I was a fetus, you know, and so she's had she's been preparing for all of these extracurriculars and volunteer hours for her Harvard application literally since preschool. And Rory's like, oh, wow, I didn't know you needed that. Like for someone who is apparently so keen on going to an Ivy League school, you didn't you didn't know that? Like you didn't but also yeah, and I feel like that's that's her um upbringing kind of coming out. Like everyone always told her she could, so 
Why yeah. wouldn't it be enough that I'm a go-getter? You know what I mean? It's so um, true. So I think the same thing is translating now in university, in college for her, where she's like, well, I just have to do well in my classes and like the rest will fall into place because I'm working hard. And that's not always the case. You it's know? true, though. Like when you think of like we've people online and we've talked about this a lot just in general, of how people will react to Rory's overall character trajectory. And it's but it makes sense when you think about it, like the way the way she was raised by people around her just always saying like oh well you can do it and as long as you work hard everything falls into place and it's like okay well adulthood doesn't always work like that like sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't like I don't like I think that's why these aspects of Roy's character resonate so much and that's why it can create controversy because it's like everything you just said about her just really adds up like no wonder when we, when we meet her again in a year in the life like I I for one was not was not surprised at all of how where she was at that point in her life like to me just that's 100% makes sense and I don't know it's just it's just aggravated when people don't really put two and two together with Rory Gilmore with that like of course like of course that's the way she was raised like the <laughs> <laughs> yeah um the last thing I'll say about that is that um just because you go to an Ivy League school doesn't mean you're smart yeah, exactly and doesn't mean you're gonna succeed no. Um, if we recall, George W. Bush went to Yale and he's an idiot. <laughs> and no, but to compare, like even compare with him the show, like people, there could, there were definitely people at Chilton, like Madeline Louise, like there was for sure other students like that who weren't very smart or academically driven, but had rich parents who could have easily sent them to Ivy League schools. They could have, you know, bribed the, the, the people to get them in, like, you know, Felicity Huffman and Lori, what's her name, from Full House. So, yeah. it, you know, it, that stuff happens. Just because you go to an Ivy League school doesn't mean dick all in the grand scheme of things. Exactly. And by <laughs> the way, you can do just as good an education not at an Ivy League school without spending half a million dollars. Yeah. So um, that's that. That's just um, snob- it's just snobbery, honestly. Honest yeah. to God, yeah. I feel like I don't know... Well, it's weird commenting on the American educational system as a Canadian. Yeah, we've discussed this. <laughs> because, um, like, nobody goes bankrupt here trying to go to university. That's true. Um, and, you know, student loans are a thing, but not in the same way that they are in the United States. But um, it's becoming more and more like a name drop thing of like, oh, I went to Harvard. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I went to Concordia. Whoop de doo. Like, what's the difference? <laughs> like, it doesn't. No, stop. Anyways, um, I also want to talk about the fact that this is the first time that we see Logan in the newsroom. Yes. So, um, Logan walks into the newsroom, and Doyle's kind of downing his life, and we learn that his family is kind of a big deal in the newspaper business. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of already got the sense from the last interaction that Rory had with him but it's cemented now with the fact that you know Doyle is talking about how he sank his father's father's yacht and he parties all the time so we were they're really honing in on that rich kid um persona for him right um I love the scene the 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 lines where <laughs> Doyle's like I hate that kind of guy that privileged white male <laughs> and Roy's like Doyle, you're a privileged white male. <laughs> like, <laughs> that line always reminds me of you. Like that was like that was something that you would say in terms like if someone like that that reminds me of you, and it also reminds me of like 
when like when white gay men think that they're so much better and above like other privileged white males like just because you're gay doesn't that doesn't mean you are any less white or privileged sweetie yeah yeah um oh yeah i don't give a fuck i would tell him to yeah i'm so glad she told him she's like doyle like look in the mirror you idiot like (laughs) um but yeah so we learned his father is a big newspaper magnet mogul whatever yeah um which kind of fits because he shows up in the newsroom and he's like well, I gave away the beats and he's like, ah, oh, whatever. I don't want them anyways. I'm just here for my father. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're definitely trying to establish Logan as a character going forward. Yeah. Um, and it's the first time since their initial interaction that they start speaking again. Mm-hmm. Um, so while Rory's doing research and interviewing somebody about her downloading story, she runs into a girl wearing a ball gown and a plastic gorilla mask who says a Latin phrase. Do you remember what the phrase is? Oh, how you really think I forgot the phrase? <laughs> I'm like, if he doesn't remember episode titles, he's not going to remember the phrase. Really? In omnia practice. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she's doing some research and she discovers what we all knew. And that's that downloading story was dumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she discovers this secret society. Is that what we would call it? Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, I when when she started talking about like secret societies in college, I thought about the Puffs. Yes. And I was like, I don't know. Like, I've never heard anyone talk about secret societies more than the show has. I know. I don't know why they're everywhere in this show. And then I was like, is this a rich white thing? Absolutely. That's why I don't like this storyline. I'm like, this is a wasp thing, isn't it? Like it a really rich is. That's what I was going to say. I was, I was waiting for you to finish. So I was going to be like, I've never found the life and death period to be an interesting storyline. I don't like, like, okay. You, you're think... all you're you're all rich. You all have rich parents. And you just do these random ass things. And it's like, okay, you want a medal? <laughs> okay. Well, I think. And I won't say too much about this, but I think in the next episode, when we really get down to the nitty gritty of the Life and Death Brigade, I think it makes for like an interesting plot line and visually stunning scenes. It does. Just like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I it nah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what. So what I was going to say with that is I don't know what it means to be part of a secret society, either in high school or in college. Nor I. Like, what does it do for you? I don't know. It gives you street cred. But you're not allowed to talk about it. So, like, street cred among those who know about it? But then, if you all know about it, it means you're all part of it. So, you all have the same street cred. So, you can't brag about it. Yeah, I don't know. Just for, like, petty, emotionally immature teenagers. No, but I don't get it. I don't get it either. You're asking the (laughs) wrong person. And, like... I started looking into it and I've, I read a couple of articles about, you know, the history of secret societies at universities and like the famous one who famous ones who've had like famous members and stuff, notable members, they call them. And I've read so many articles and I still don't understand the point. No, I think it's. And I'm like, is it me? No, no, it's definitely just not you. I think. I think. (laughs) Um, I think 
like when I say street cred, I don't mean like obviously because you can't brag about it, but it's like I think it's like a form of street cred for yourself. Like it just it takes that's what it's kind of like a cult like mentality of like you know the like they say cults prey on a certain type of person who's immature, or like who's immature, insecure, um, and has, just has a very low opinion and image of themselves. I think it. I think in a way, like secret societies are like a cult in that way where it preys on people like certain person like a person of a certain you know profile in university and of an even like, I really can't speak tonight <laughs> like a certain university of an Ivy League you know place and institution was the word I was looking for um and it's it's just it's just something for them to make them feel good about themselves like they feel they feel a part of something like a like a like a society or a club that's not secret in university and colleges to like for the sake of community and for the sake of feeling a part of something whereas like a secret society is like oh i have to keep this secret it's, it's like the the act of keeping it a secret is just that much more tantalizing i don't know but i'm thinking it, it, to me it's very in line with a cult i mean that's what it's like I don't know if I would go so far as to say cult. I think <laughs> no, but I mean I understand where you're coming from, and I think from all the reading that I've done about this and like the examples that I've uncovered, <laughs> to me it's more of like a group of people that would normally hang out together because of their rich status, mm-hmm. hanging out together in secret, yeah, um, yeah. and not so much for. Um, not like hanging out in secret, but like hanging out in an exclude. Like it's the ex- exclusivity that they like about it. Yeah, that too. It, you know, that's. Uh, mm, I don't know. <laughs> we're very just, we're we're very conflicted on this. Please, if you know anything about secret societies or their point or their appeal, please tell us. <laughs> but I don't know what they do. Just sit around, like you know. I just thought of they're like Janice, Janice, Ian, and Mean Girls. Do you have an awesome time? You just sit around. Did you drink shooters and suck up each other's awesomeness? <laughs> Honest to God, and like everything, every article I've read about it, and I'm trying to figure out what they do. And there's literally a heading that says, "What do secret societies do?" <laughs> and it still doesn't enlighten me. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. <laughs> We don't know. We have no. I don't know what to do with all this non-information. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um. In any event, getting back to Rory, uh, Rory discovers that Logan's grandfather was in it, which means how these things usually work in the Wasp world is, um, you know, your grandfather was in it, which means your father was in it, which means you're in it. It's very much a nepotism thing. Yeah. That too. Um, Yeah. So she tells him that she has a bunch of little stuff, and she's going to be going ahead with this article. And she offers him a chance to, I guess, give his input Mm -hmm. or respond. Um, And at first he denies knowing anything about it. Right. But then towards the end of the episode, he comes into the newsroom and they have a little instant messaging chat. Yeah. God, I miss the days of instant messaging. I really don't. (laughs) I miss it because you could play games on it. Okay, so you so you miss like the you miss. I miss the interactive stuff. games. <laughs> okay, so you don't miss the actual interaction between people. I mean, I don't understand. This is way off topic, but I genuinely don't understand how like so it became a big big thing when I was in. I want to say fifth grade. Okay. And 
I would go to school and spend all day with these people and then run home, log onto the computer so that I can talk to these people again the whole night. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, was I stupid? <laughs> Am I an idiot? No, that was pretty much the appeal of it. And it's funny you're saying that because you would have been like around the same age as my older cousins who were also very into MSN and and whatever the what, what was the other one AOL or whatever AOL, aim, aim yeah aim <laughs> and now no more MSN than aim but uh, uh, yeah I was the era of MSN yeah and aim was just dying down when MSN became a big thing right exactly and it had a lot more features yeah so I remember my cousin like maybe not so much my old no they pretty much all were on it um <laughs> And, like, I remember he, he, like, he would just sit at the computer pretty much all evening. Either he was on Facebook or he was on MSN. He was, like, messaging with a bunch of different people. Some of which were, like, lived down the street, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, Completely away any face-to-face interaction. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, at that time, I would have been, like, 9 or 10. And, like, kids my age were more into, like, YouTube. And, like, YouTube was just becoming big at that time from what I – if I can remember. So, like, we weren't so much into – MSN like like some of us were like but I think it was because we had learned it either for like an older sibling or like an older cousin like me but not so much of kids who kids who wouldn't have any prior connection to it didn't really have it but I remember all that to say I remember my cousin when he would be online like literally it would be like pages and pages of like remember how it would be like if you were if you were online it was like green and if you're offline it was red like the yeah, little, and then you would little... say BRB and set yourself to away yeah, like the little icon of like the person with the head and the body was either red or was green. Yeah. So I remember, or blue or something, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I remember like he would have pages and pages of people who were like blue, meaning they were online. And when like I only had a handful of people. So like whenever I would log on, it would be like maybe one or two would be online. It would usually be my cousin or my other cousin. And everyone else was red. And I had like maybe half a page of people. And so it was just funny in comparison because it was like you had a full ass page of friends who were always online. And I had some cousins and maybe one or two friends. <laughs> I genuinely don't understand the hype because I'm going to see you tomorrow on the school bus. Yeah. It can wait. <laughs> Well, like, you know what? Nothing's so pressing that I have to talk to you about it right now. <laughs> Actually, there is because maybe they want to discuss that day's episode of Passions with you. Oh my God, yes, Passions. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I don't know why I tried to fit in. Okay. <laughs> um. So Rory agrees to his conditions, which are you're not allowed to know the conditions, and it sets up next episode pretty nicely. So I think for that, um, we're going to have a lot more to say about Logan and the Life and Death Brigade next time. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll put a pin in that. Put a pin in that. Um, let's move on to the inn. Yeah, can we talk about Suki and Norman Mailer? But more, more importantly, Norman Mailer, because I have a lot to say. Okay, well, <laughs> here's what I have to say. So first of all, for those of you who don't know, um, that was the real Norman Mailer. Yes. Who guest starred. And that was his real life son playing the interviewer. Yes. I have a whole background on Norman Mailer. So like, don't go too into, into too much detail. Well, what? I'm not allowed to speak now? Okay. Speak. Go ahead. Um, so I just want to set the background real quick. Um, 
I guess Anne is their financial advisor or business planner. <laughs> yeah. I guess. I don't know. But so the team is meeting with Anne, who's telling them, you know, like advising them on what to do, how to save some money. And one of her suggestions is that they cut back lunch because nobody ever like nobody's coming for lunch and they have a full kitchen staff and you're wasting food and you're wasting salaries. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense financially to keep offering lunch. Yeah. So Suki flips out and Acts, acts like a petulant child. Well, yeah, acts like a petulant child and is like, lunch is my thing. Take away Michelle's thing. And he very <laughs> rightly says, what things? I answer a phone. Um, and then she goes on to blame Norman Mailer because Norman Mailer has been coming to the inn every day with this interviewer and only ordering bucket loads of iced tea. And for the for the record, Suki's petulant childness over lunch is not justified. But her bitterness over Norman Mailer and the interviewer only ordering iced tea in a restaurant that serves food is completely valid. Well, here's what I'll say about that. <laughs> I I presume that the reason they're doing the interview there is because either the interviewer or Norman Mailer is staying there. Okay. So then, because why else would they be like, they're not, they don't live in Stars Hollow. You know what I mean? Yeah, but then they end up at Luke's, but that's because that's because Suki chased them away. <laughs> well, yeah, that's why they got fucking terrified of the pregnant lady. But um, so I was just I came at it thinking like, OK, they're probably just doing the interview there because one of them is staying there. Right. Yeah. Um, so then it would make more sense, I think, if you were like, well, we're going to go downstairs to the dining room and do this interview and we're not hungry. We're just going to order iced tea. Now, yeah. if they had just come in off the street into the restaurant and were like, we just want iced tea? Yes, I agree with you. I think that's dumb and really disrespectful. Um, but I, I'm a little <laughs> on the fence because I'm 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 pretty I'm 98 percent sure that one of them is staying there. <laughs> OK, yeah, because I, I always came from the from the from the concept of they just walked in off the street. But then again, that would make sense because that. Okay, not much, not much makes sense in, on Gilmore Girls. Okay, so in real, like in reality, not much computes. So in in my head, I always just thought they were they just walked in off the street. Maybe I don't know. I have no idea. Like why the hell would why the hell would Norman would Norman Mailer ever be at the at the Dragonfly even well, if he was staying it there? Seems, he seems like the type of man to want to retire in a very white state like Connecticut. Yeah. So I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if like he retired in Connecticut. And the author, the interviewer, was staying there. Yeah. I don't know. But in my head, one of them is staying there, and that's why they're doing the interview there. And, I mean, they could have moved to the library and done it there. Um, but, you know, it's not his fault that nobody's coming for lunch, right? Obviously. And Michelle also blames Anne, because Anne, oh, Anne, always, Anne, Anne has always hated me. Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Anne did hate her. But well, yeah, look at how you react. <laughs> Seriously. Um, anyways, so before we get into your stuff about Norman Mailer, um, so Suki freaks out and doesn't want to cut lunch. So she hires Kirk to go give flyers to drum up business. And outside Kirk, of Luke's. <laughs> outside of Luke's. Well, that was I think that was his choice. OK. <laughs> you know, because he says to Lorelai, you know, I figured I would go to the place where people normally have lunch and just tell them to have lunch at the Dragonfly. Um. And because it's Kirk, like Lorelai says, the mm-hmm. giant wiener costume is implied. Yeah. 
Um, I think, by the way, the scene where she's kind of leading him away and he's like, this is a fa- as fast as I can go in this costume. <laughs> just if you watch that scene again, just focus on his legs. It's yeah. fucking hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's so funny. He has zero range of motion. Um, so, yeah, then Lorelai goes and confronts Suki and through all her nuttiness, Suki's like, oh, my God, I'm so nutty because I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so... Hence the title. She goes and runs to Norman Mailer and says, Norman Mailer, I'm pregnant. Um, I would just like to say that if Suki was acting like this and she wasn't pregnant, I wouldn't be at all surprised. No. Because we've seen her kind of be blasé about the business in the past and mm-hmm. only care about her own things, which is the kitchen. And she doesn't seem to want to... Um, how do I put this? She it's very convenient for her to forget about the business side of things. Yeah. You know, she's told Lorelai in the past, you know, I'm the food person, like you take care of the business kind of thing. That's not my thing. Yeah, that's not my thing, she said in the past, not quite in that voice. Thank you, Jeffrey. <laughs> um, but um you know, so uh, to me it's it's like <laughs> This is, I feel like, typical behavior for her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the pregnancy really altered anything. But she did seem to be... She did seem to be more self-aware at the end where she's like, I don't know why it's bugging me so much. I feel myself going nutty, you know? Mm-hmm. Which, I get it. But all this to say, that's not out of character for Suki to act this way. No, and I also want to ask, in what way is acting like an immature, irrational child, or as she puts it, nutty? In what way is that a symptom of early pregnancy? Uh, hormones, bro. Yeah, I know. Okay, hormones, bro. Yeah, I get it. But, like, to me, it just seems like they kind of will write it into Suki's character. And even, like you said, it's not out of character for her. So how, you know what I mean? So how exactly? No, like, I know. And that's why I think they, it's not out of character. It's not out of character for her. So I still think that, like, you know, while she was still being reasonable with, like, um, when Lorelai tells her we're cutting lunch, she's like, oh, fine, whatever. Um, I think you're, what I think they were trying to get at was that your regular personality just goes into overdrive. Right. And you become a little bit irrational. Okay. I'll accept that. <laughs> Oh, great. Thank you, Mr. Gynecologist. <laughs> yeah, never. I could never do that. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, like, you know, maybe if some of our listeners aren't very familiar with Norman Mailer, I just wanted to, you know, give a little bit of backstory as to, well, first I'll explain how he ended up on Gilmore Girls, because I, I looked that up, <laughs> and I found um, an article from, don't worry, I'm not reading anything extensively, calm down. Um, not, I found an article from Entertainment Weekly in October 2004 when the show was airing, the episode was airing, and um, he has like he apparently had said like legendary other other shows had asked if he had wanted to guest star, and he had once said infamously, "I hate sitcoms. I don't want to go near them." Um, Surprise. Yeah, and that was I thought so that was actually his he that was his response when other shows had asked, and that was his response when Gilmore Girls asked. But like, it's not really a sitcom. Um, so according to Amy Sherman Palladino, she said we're not really a stunt casty show. 
and the WB, they love their stunt casting. So we're sitting around the writer's room and I'm joking, you know, we should get Tony Kushner, Stephen Sondheim and Norman Mailer and have our own Algonquin roundtable at Lorelei's Inn. And the writers narrowed their ambitions to Mailer since one of them was friends with Stephen and says to Norman Palladino, we send him the outline he calls and he goes, I like the story. I think it's very cute. I like the Luke and Lorelei bit. And so essentially he agreed to be on the show and i just find it like i like i find it hilarious that the wb was like we need a stunt cast for Gilmore girls like make it snappy like make it someone to draw in the like the viewers i'm like how about norman mailer like who the fuck who the fuck out of <laughs> gilmore girls viewership is gonna know who norman mailer is yeah so i think <laughs> the reason that this is so hilarious to me this casting choice is so hilarious to me is because it seems like they didn't really understand their audience yeah um mind you i think it is i think it is on brand for gilmore girls and it's well i was just about to say i think in the kind of humor that amy sherman palladino has and all these pop culture references and being very you know tuned into um how should i put this like good writer like classic writers and like controversy surrounding writings throughout the years like i think it's very on brand for the show to bring her on to bring him on excuse me Mm -hmm. um but in terms of like what's gonna get the audience going uh zero percent with norman (laughs) and so um amy sharon paldino acknowledged that but she like again thought it would just thought it was like she was always looking for something that was on par for the show and not like something like she was she was not a sellout all like in other words like she would want to have something or if if the the network said like we need a we need a bit like a big guest star some kind of stunt casting like you're asking the wrong person like amy sherman paladino is not going to bring on i don't know uh ryan gosling he's not like ryan gosling's not doing gilmore girls norman mailer maybe he'll do gilmore girls you know yeah, yeah. um so but then- can i just say like the fact that they even got him Mm-hmm. it's just such an like amy sherman palladino is such an enigma to me oh yeah because like on the one hand she writes these really fierce women and she's such a feminist and like she's an advocate for women's rights and that comes across in her writing and she's very like left leaning and she's not shy to get a little bit political in her writing and i'm like all oh, that is amazing and then contrast that with the fact that you brought on a man who almost murdered his wife. Yes. So can I get into that? <laughs> sure. Okay. So all yes, agree with all of that, especially like you said, Amy Sherman Palladino is has created a lot of left leaning feminist centric things. Um, and Norma Mailer is more or less the epitome of misogyny. Yes. It, Mid 20th century misogyny, especially. Um, so, for those who don't really know, maybe you don't know anything about Nora Mailer in general, he was a famous, famous American novelist, journalist, essayist, playwright, filmmaker, etc. Um, he's he he became most famous as because he was considered an an innovator of creative nonfiction, also known as new journalism, which I actually learned about extensively in uh, my studies as an English lit major. So that's where I first learned about him. And I so by the time I watched this episode for the first time, I actually like it was funny. We talked about Nora Mailer not being on par with the WB's core 
group of audience. Um, when I first watched it, it had been a year since I had first studied creative nonfiction and new journalism. So I was like, oh, Nora Mailer, what are the odds of that? Like for me, the English lit nerd, like I, it was, it was on brand for me. So I got it. But to look back now, it's like, okay, why exactly would you want Norman Mailer, who is known, as you said, for he served a three-year probation after he stabbed his wife Adele with a penknife in 1960. By the way, by the way, he openly admitted that he was guilty and he still got only three years probation. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Tell me how you're not a privileged white man. Yeah. Um, hang on. Where where did so he stabbed her once in the chest and once in the back, and she required emergency surgery, but made a quick recovery. Norman Mailer claimed he stabbed Adele to relieve her of her cancer. He was involuntarily committed. He was involuntarily committed to Bellevue Hospital for 17 days. While Adele did not press charges, saying she wanted to protect their daughters, Mailer later pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of assault, saying, "I feel, I feel, I did a lousy, dirty, cowardly thing." Oh, you and, don't say, Norman. Okay, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't stab her just to quote relieve her of cancer. Also, like, what do we even <laughs> say to that? I don't know what to say to that. I'm, like, but, what do I, what do I do with that? Yeah. yeah. So getting, but getting more in, aside from the fact that he, the, he literally tried to kill his wife for whatever reason, um, he is mostly, he's, he's most known as a misogynist, you know, within feminist thinking circles um, since he published, I guess, I don't know if it's actually a book or what, it, or um, what exactly it is. It's, or no, it was an essay. Okay. It was an essay. It was published in 1971 in Harper's Magazine, and it was called The Prisoner of Sex. And um, essentially, um, okay, so it was published as a book after it was published in Harper's. So it's essentially his response to the 1960s women's liberation movement. And he basically attacks one critic throughout. Her name was Katie Millett. And basically, he took issue with women's lib and Millett. And Katie Millett... Um, she thought that writers like Norman Mailer, Henry Miller, and D.H. Lawrence were symbols of misogyny. You're not wrong. And so he essentially wrote the the essay kind of like attacking her in response, saying like, he said, though women may try to equal men, this is unattainable and and undesirable due to biological differences between the sex between the sexes, hence the title, we are, our, we, are, we are All Prisoners of Sex, Despite Our Greatest Attempts to Escape. Um, no. <laughs> so, okay, so there's that, just for the, the sake of it. Then I found um, a Q&A that he did with New York Magazine in October 2004 mm-hmm. in preparation for Gilmore, the Gilmore Girls episode airing. I'm guessing it was kind of a big deal at the time because he was three years away from death. Um, so the interviewer asked him, she says, you're appearing on an upcoming episode of Gilmore Girls. Isn't that show a little girly for you? I'm like, excuse me? Even That's the so- interviewer's fault. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and so she, he said, well, I got to this show by a particular course of events. They happened to write a script in which a well-known author is visiting Lorelai's Inn Okay, you're right. And drinking no, and drinking nothing but iced tea and driving the cook crazy. I think they're using the name Norman Mailer. And somebody said, let's try and get him. Of course, I said no. But then they wanted my son Stephen too, and they and that made all the difference. Okay. okay. 
Um, then it's funny that we're in preparation for discussing this episode this week. Um, I'm subscribed to the New Yorker's email e- email newsletter, which sends out like a roundup of different articles from each day. And in the December 26th issue of the New Yorker, there is a piece called The Making of Norma Mailer. And I thought that was really interesting that popped up in my inbox this week in preparation for us discussing this episode. Um, essentially, um, Norma Mailer like his kind of macho you know mid mid 20th century approach to masculinity came from this like sense of insecurity as like being cast as like a nice jewish boy from brooklyn growing up and he he thought this image of himself was quote absolutely insupportable uh okay so essentially he joined the army and all these other things to i'm guess i'm guessing to run away from this image that was cast upon him in childhood um and so, where am I looking here? He said essentially that he believed that physical courage was necessary was necessary equipment for a great writer, believing Hemingway was the model. Okay, Hemingway was also trash, <laughs> and that Jewish men in particular had to overcome all sorts of weaknesses. His recklessness encompassed an abominable act. At the drunk, at the end of a drunken party in 1960, he twice stabbed wife Adele and the mo- mother of his two children. I let God down, Mailer, Mailer, Mailer later told Betsy Mailer, one of his daughters with Adele. For all good and for all, for good and for ill, that was the Mailer the world knew for more than 50 years. When he died in 2007, at the age of 84, his reputation was at a low ebb. His temperament and, preca- and preoccupations seemed artifacts of a bygone and benighted era, and not without reason. His reactionary po- sexual politics expressed at length in the rapturously composed but more list more but morally preposterous polemic the prisoner of sex published in harper's has been the center of searing critiques for half a century uh yeah so all that to say norman mailer's trash thoughts <laughs> i mean yeah he's trash yeah also didn't he like hang out with alan Der- didn't he excuse me because i know he's dead didn't he hang out with alan dershowitz who was equally trash yeah he did Okay, so you're both trash. Yeah, says that in this article too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand Amy Sherman Palladino. Like, I wouldn't want someone like that anywhere near my show. And I don't know if it's because we're looking at it through a 2022 lens, um, but I don't know. It seems like you work so hard to to get your show off the ground. To you know, your audience is young girls and women. Mm-hmm. and you know you're like oh wouldn't it be fun to have norman mailer on no amy <laughs> no i want i have to wonder if if um like maybe i don't know what i don't know if norman mailer in particular means something to her as a writer or whatever but um i have to think that a lot of the people that amy sherman paladino admired more specifically like dorothy parker and other um, you know, other writers of that caliber and that era, um, they were all long dead by the time that Gimmel Rose was airing. So she probably thought like, hmm, who among like my core group of influences from, you know, whichever era, most likely like the 60s and 70s is still alive. And who could I get on my show? And like, my question Norm- is, why is he an influence for you? I don't know. I'm, I'm, and I, I, I don't know if I don't know if Norm Mailer is an influence for Amy Sherman Palladino. Don't quote me on that. I'm just I'm trying to envision in what universe would she want someone like Norma Mailer on her show? So I'm thinking, like, 
could it be she could it be like that was she was scraping the bottom of the barrel for writers from an era that she liked or something you know I mean I feel like season five was popular enough that you could have gotten another author Mm -hmm. that wasn't a douchebag I mean it took them to like the series finale to make to get um what's her name (laughs) yeah to get her obviously and that was an a nod to Rory's, you know, lifelong dream of being her. But I think, like you said, there's definitely there definitely could have been someone else who would have been a on brand for Gilmore Girls and b uh, less of a trash white man. <laughs> but also, I I also have a beef with the the WB because the WB claims to be this family friendly network. Um, you know, that couldn't do certain storylines because they weren't, they were too risky. But you're okay with having Norman Mailer, an attempted murderer, mm-hmm. make a cameo on arguably one of your most popular shows. Yes. Oh, and one last thing about Norman Mailer and what I actually knew about him before I knew anything else in terms of his work or his trash personal life. Um, he was famous for writing a much discredited and disputed uh, biography of Marilyn Monroe, which was published in 1973. And essentially, he expresses his belief that Monroe was murdered by agents of the FBI and CIA who resented her supposed affair with Robert F. Kennedy. And essentially, it was it came under fire and controversy at the time because it was billed and marketed as a, as a biography when he later tried to, like, recast it as some form of creative nonfiction where he inserted his own opinion. And it's like, that's not a biography. And you don't get to insert your own opinions into, like, like, biographical fact. I don't know. Everything about this man just screams screams trash. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, like, I'm I'm so baffled by the choice. So, um, Amy, explain yourself. (laughs) Yeah. And also, like, if you're a network... And you want one of your shows to have a special guest star, no matter, like, you know, either playing themselves or, like, an actor playing a certain character, a certain actor playing a character. Shouldn't you do the work? Yeah, that's true. Like, shouldn't it be the network reaching out and not the individual shows and writers? I mean, I listen, I think as a show, you should reach out. But shouldn't they be doing the network be doing the heavy lifting of trying to convince people? I think so. And I think that also speaks to the manner in which Amy Sherman Palladino ran Gilmore Girls. And I want to get more into that at the end of season six, obviously, when the Sherman Palladinos leave the show. Um, But from what I've read, just as a, you know, precursor to that. Like, she, I'm not going to say she had some kind of, like, tyranny over the show, but, like, she kept it very closed quarters and closed off as much as she could from the network because she didn't want them, like, influencing her to change stuff to fit, like, the time and the mold of whatever was selling big at that time. So, like, she's, like, there's an, she was apparently, like, notorious for delivering scripts to the network late so that they would they would have like the least amount of time to criticize or demand changes and to me when you think to me i don't know how much all of the, all of these little tidbits and rumors played into them leaving the show and in, at the end of season six but 
um, yeah, I think maybe, I don't know who, I'm assuming the network would have had to have played some role in reaching out to Norman, to Norman Mailer, but I would also believe that Amy would have kind of shouldered a lot of that because it was her, like, I think I have to, I kind of get the impression from what I've read that she was just a bit of a control freak because it was her show and her very specific vision and there was nothing else there been nothing else like it on television i would argue in tone and in style that she's kind of had a bit of like an obsessive compulsive control over how it all went down so i don't know i mean i also have to think that in the early 2000s there weren't many women running their own shows either right so you know having to deal with male execs from major um networks couldn't have been easy for her either Mm mm-hmm Um, especially since it took so long to get the show off the ground because it was such a female-centered show, right? Yeah. Not many networks believe that a show like that can do well in primetime television. So I have to imagine that some of that control comes from her wanting, her knowing that these stories about women for women are important and not wanting them to, you know, change the essence of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe she was just really OCD too. Yeah, but like, yeah, like no judgment for her wanting to maintain control of her own show away from, you know, male executives who, you know, might have changed things so crucially outside of her vision. Like, absolutely, I, I'm with her 100%. If that's why she chose to always, you know, be the gatekeeper to the Gilmore Girls world, that's absolutely, that's your show. That's your blood, sweat, and tears. I just think. I, w- I just have to wonder how much of that, how much of, you know, that control either, like, I'm not going to say led to her downfall, because obviously she she still worked and has been so obsessive, not obsessive, has been so, like, majorly, overwhelmingly successful with Mrs. Maisel in the years since. It's just, like, I have to, like, it's just interesting to me to think about that, like, in the terms of how it might have, how the, the, the manner in which she ran the show could have been done differently, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. So we'll see when we get, we'll see when we dive into that when they leave the show in at the end of season six. Gonna be interesting for sure. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, um, sure I'm sure you have a lot of tidbits that I don't know. Um, probably because I just remember being slightly older and following it very closely. Yeah, you would have like you had been watching the show live as it happened, whereas I would have yeah. I would have read about it ret- retrospectively. So yeah, and I remember also this is way off topic, but I remember it also being such a big thing when they when their contracts specifically weren't renewed mm-hmm. um, that a lot of a lot of these like entertainment news outlets had daily you know, updates on it because it was such a big thing that a creator of a show was like, well, we're parting ways for artistic differences, you know? Um, I remember it being really big. So I'll have a lot to say when we get there for sure. Yes. So uh, did, did, did we have anything else to say about this episode? <laughs> obviously. <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about with this episode is yuck. Uh, the trash bag that is Christopher. I was going to say the, the yuck. <laughs> the ickies. <laughs> in my notes wrote the return of christopher dot 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 big yuck so we had a blessed year in 2003-2004 where christopher did not make one appearance in all of season four did we miss him no 
No, and like blessed be the fruit. And when and even when I think about it now, like I I didn't like you, there's no moment in season four where you would have been like, oh, where was Christopher? Like I didn't think he was not. He did. I didn't think of him at all. There's never any moment in the show where I'm like, this scene would be so improved if Christopher was here. Okay, well, yeah, but you're a little biased because you hate him with the, you know, heat of a thousand suns. But so do you. So do I, yes. I can't stand him. I'm just saying, like, from a neutral point of view, there's no moment. You're not neutral. Shut up. You're not (laughs) neutral. Like, there's no moment in season four where I'm like, where's Christopher? Like, he's not even a thought, a blip, you know? Okay, but shut up. You're not neutral. I try to be. It's a it's a facade. It's not working. It's a lifestyle, darling. Look it up. No. Um. Anyways, in this episode, Christopher calls Lorelai in a panic because Gigi is being what? A baby. Being a bitch too, yeah. No, but like she's a baby. What do you expect her to do? She's gonna cry. Obviously. Like I can't deal. <gasps> like what? <laughs> So he calls her in a panic. She's like, I can't get her to stop crying. She won't eat. She won't sleep. Like, what do I do? And she's like, I'm coming. And I was like, oh, bitch, no. Don't do it. But then she does it. Mm-hmm. Um, This whole scene, and not just because it's Christopher, but this whole thing is so frustrating to me, like, from Lorelai's point of view. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, she gets there. He's, like, in a panic because she's crying and he can't get her down. And Lorelai's like, just put her in a crib. It's fine. And then they have this conversation on the couch where I want to smack Lorelai. Okay. Because, and I'll tell you why, I'm I'm leading up to it. Chris is talking about how he can't do this. He can't be a parent. Oh, well, we we know that. (laughs) Well, number one, we know that. Tell me something I don't know, you fucking idiot. (laughs) Number two. I don't understand Lorelai's need to give terrible men so much credit. I know. I said it last week with Dean. Like, I don't know why she gives him the benefit of the doubt i don't know why she goes to bat for him all the time i don't know why she defends him all the time Mm -hmm. in this episode she's giving chris a pep talk and she's like well if i you know had decided to follow the bangles around the world you would have put on the wonder woman cape and been a great parent and i'm like um in what universe yeah, what world do you live in? <laughs> like, do you really think that if you didn't want to be a parent, first of all, that would have never happened because the burden always falls on the woman, right? Mm-hmm. But do you really think that Christopher would have been like, yeah, I'm going to raise this child? I don't think Lorelai actually believes that. I think she's just blowing smoke up his ass. But why? What has he done to deserve you blowing smoke up his ass? absolutely nothing he's abandoned you three times i know he you know what i have to give him credit though he like normally the the guys that are idiots and like absolute trash aren't as self-aware as him it's true i give give him a little bit of credit for being like i'm so bad i only call you when i need you and i'm like oh well at least he knows (laughs) you know he hasn't called rory in god knows how long yeah 
And like, also, don't you have anyone else in your life that you can call? You have parents, no? Well, okay. Out of all the people who's going to call, his parents are probably not high on the list. Well, well, we know that he takes Gigi to his mother's house. True. We all know why he called Lorelai. I get it, but I'm just like, you're so dumb. (laughs) Her and him, but her. Yeah, they're both dumb. I'm like, what are you doing? What strikes me most about this whole this scene and this whole interaction between Christopher and Lorelai is how much he acts like Lorelai was special and lucky for being a mother for like the for being a mother, the way in which she became a mother. It's like, no, you're at, like the way he just put it, like, well, when you're but you're special. Like she wasn't lucky, she wasn't special. It just kind of makes it sound like there was no hard work involved in being a parent the way she became a parent. And it's like, to me, is very demoralizing and just takes away all of the work that Lorelai put into being a parent. Way yeah, but he's, he's always been like that. Remember in the first season where he like, where he showed up before the softball game and he's like, wow, she's like, she's so grown up. She's so good. We got so lucky. It's not luck, you idiot. A lot of work goes into raising a child. And that work gets multiplied tenfold when you're 16. Yeah. But you wouldn't know that because you got to live your life. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I'm not even surprised that Sherry left him. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, because here's the thing. Like, I, I obviously think it's very shitty that she left her daughter and was like, I'm going to Paris. Fuck off. But... When she says, when he's saying, when he's telling Lorelai what she said to him, which was, I put my career on hold for two years and now it's your turn. I can totally see, because I have a blueprint for how Christopher is. I can totally see Christopher not being involved with Gigi, not chipping in, not helping around the house, and just going away on business all the time and leaving everything to Sherry, just like he left everything to Lorelai. Yeah. So I can 100% see how the woman snapped and was like, yo, I haven't worked in two years. I'm stuck with a shitty baby. I'm leaving. (laughs) I just say shitty baby because I think all babies are shitty. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, I do feel bad, obviously, that this woman left her child. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think you should have children if you're going to leave them and abandon them. But like, who are you to talk, sir? Yeah. To me, I always thought of it as like, Sherry was wasn't necessarily leaving him. She was leaving her. She was leaving the life. She wanted like she didn't want. You know she like she she built it up so much in her head that she wanted a husband or a husband and kids and whatever. But then when push came to shove, she didn't want that and she left for Paris. But when you lay it out like that, I can also totally see Christopher being a trash. You know. Are they were they married? I'm lost now. Or no, still engaged. Right. Okay. So I can totally see Christopher being a shitty partner and father. Well, it's, the thing and leaving is, everything to her, and so that makes sense when you put it that way. Yeah, and the thing is also is like remember when we were first introduced to Sherry in season two, and her and Rory have this heart to heart, and she tells Rory that she's always wanted to have kids and get married and. Like, that's always a place that she envisioned for herself, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what makes me think that it wasn't so much being a mother. 
and being a partner. It was being a partner to Christopher. Yeah. When she where she was expected to do everything. Yeah. And of course, it's hard to be like it's speculation, obviously, on my part, but it's hard to be a working mom when you don't have support from your partner. Yeah. And, you know, he even says it. I came back from a business trip. I was gone for so long. I barely know my daughter, which tells me everything I need to know, which is you were never there. Yeah. So you took a life that this woman very much wanted. She wanted to be a mother. She wanted to have a partner. She wanted to raise a family. And you shot on it. <laughs> I was just going to say that. You shot all over it. Because, like, clearly, 20 plus years have gone by and you haven't even matured even a little bit. Nope. It's so true. Every, t- every single time we- we've discussed Christopher, like, there's so many negative nuances to his character that at least I didn't. Re- I never, really- I'm not going to say I never picked up on, but, like, it took me a long time to pick up on them. And then once you started pointing them out, it's like, it's just. You can't unsee it. And I think a lot of people, when they ask, like, why is everyone so hard on Christopher? It's like, it's kind of like in a, a form of, of enlightenment where it's like, it, until you actually listen and see, you don't really pick up on it. At least that's, that's how it was for me. I'm pretty sure you're going to be like, no, I've always known he was trash. But to me, there was a lot of, like, just shitty nuances to his character that until you really, like, hammered home and analyzed them all, did I realize just how much he was trash. But also, I think the reason that I, I'm so hard on Christopher, too, is because all the other characters in a lo- like in every show, there's characters that have flaws. Um, yeah. And there's characters that you obviously dislike because they're meant to be these the villain. They're written as the villain kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's so rare to have a character that has absolutely no redeeming qualities. <laughs> but congratulations, Gilmore Girls writers. You made him. Yeah. There he is in the flesh. Would you say that Christopher has even less redeeming qualities than Dean? Yes. Because at least Dean, in the early years, I can kind of... Ugh, I can kind of brush away some of his behavior and you know, say, like, well, he was a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even though Christopher was a kid when, obviously, Lorelai got pregnant with Rory, everything that he's done since he's become an adult is terrible. Yeah. Like, he hasn't w- made one good decision. <laughs> it's true. You know, and he's so... <sighs> oh, my God, he's so manipulative. <laughs> Nothing gets you worked up quite like Christopher Hayden. I'm physically upset. <laughs> I'm Episode title, physically upset. <laughs> I'm sweating. <laughs> Anyways, so, you know, I just, I, I don't understand. I really don't. And I don't understand. The more I watch the show, obviously, I've always been upset with Christopher and Dean, just because we talked about it last time. But the more I watch the show, the more I realize that Lorelai's kind of giving them a pass all the time, so no wonder they never change. Exactly. No, it's true, and, and you don't you, you don't always want to say that or point it out because, depending on the tone of the conversation, it can kind of make you sound like misogynistic a little bit in terms of like placing blame on the women. It's not like it's not like women are blameless 
in a lot of these scenarios, but it's no, like but I think I think in the case of Christopher, I think what's happened with Lorelai is that she's tried so hard over the years to maintain a good relationship for him with him for Rory's sake. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, for for children of divorce, if the relationship between the parents is hostile, you know, they feel that. Right. Yeah. So the better you can co-parent and then the, you know, the more pleasant the co-parenting is, the better it is for the child. So I genuinely feel like Lorelai has tried so hard over the years to be like chill and good with everything for the sake of Rory. Mm -hmm. But I think at a certain point she, she went too far. Yeah. Like she went so far into like some kind of Zen mindset when it came to Christopher that she's, Where she's willing to just forgive every single transgression because she's like, well, I'm doing it for Rory. Yeah. I think that's what she says in her head to justify it. Yeah, she can't be objective. I think that really that's what it is. Like they have so much history together and, you know, she knew him before this. So I think in her head, she's like, he's not a bad guy, but, you know, he's still my daughter's father. Like, I think the mental gymnastics she has to do to keep this up. I think now has become second nature for her. I would love to have seen like some kind of some kind of therapy scene uh, similar to Lorelai and Emily in A Year in the Life, where it's Lorelai and Christopher, and like Lorelai finally lets her guard down into all of the shit that Christopher has caused, and that would I think I don't know if that would ever happen because I don't think she really lets go of that facade when it comes to Christopher. Maybe a little bit in season seven, but for different reasons so i mean i would have loved to see similar to like you said emily and lorelei in therapy i would have loved to see a scene of rory and lorelei in therapy because it seems to me and it's really evident in this episode at the end where rory goes to visit christopher it seems to me that rory when it comes to knowing who her father really is is way more realistic than lorelei will ever be yeah you know, so it's almost as if Lorelai has done so much to protect her child from knowing who the real Christopher is and trying to play nice for her sake. But it's almost backfired at this point because Rory's not dumb, you know, mm-hmm. and she's also not a child anymore and you can't protect her. And she has her own thoughts about who this man is, you know, and I like, think he the, doesn't call her. Yeah, I think the way things went down in season three when Sherry got pregnant and yeah. Um, just the extent to which Rory was, she was upset, but she also like went really quick into like, fuck you mode where it was like, you know, I'd go be somebody, when she's like, go be somebody else's dad, that, that was really telling. And to go from that to the scene at the end of this episode where she shows up at his place and just says like, I don't want you calling mom anymore. And she wasn't even rude. Like she wasn't even rude about it. And that's what I really like. She was just really to the point like she was just really blinded to the point which is what he needed to hear and i think it shows a lot of guts and growth because you compare how she was like in season one like i was like oh my dad's here like she doesn't know any better like she never sees her dad she's happy to see her dad and well yeah don't forget she's also 16 and when you're you're still a child and you still want a relationship with your father but i think you get to a certain point you know and like you said i think she got to that point in season three where you there's only so much you can forgive before seeing the person's true colors. Mm-hmm. And now at 20, like she's not a baby, you no. know, like, yeah, he's my dad, but he's a fuck up. <laughs> no, but I think that's what she's, she's like resigned to the fact. 
I also think it's important the way she articulates the way in which Lorelai reacts to Christopher being around. Yeah. Like she's like, oh, well, you know, it always ends up with mom's crying or you leave and mom's crying, whatever, whatever it is she says. And I think it's 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 t- it's telling that Rory Rory recognizes the mental barriers that Lorelai has when it comes to Christopher, like you said. So she's like she wants to protect her mother, but she, she, you know, she wants to protect herself. She wants to protect her mother. And she realizes now that like Luke and Lorelai have gone through so much to and fro of flirting, never getting together. Will they, won't they? That now they're finally together. And she's like, she sees the writing on the wall. She sees her mother communicating with her, with Christopher. And she sees, and she knows what always ends up happening in these situations. She's like, fuck that. I'm not letting you derail Luke and Lorelai's happiness, which in a Christopher way, he finds a way to do. But yeah. that's, a, that's another story. <laughs> and I also think that the, the scene earlier where Lorelai calls her, well, Lorelai calls her and is really happy. She goes, you know, you sound happy. And she goes, I am, kid, you know. And then, like, clockwork, Christopher shows up again. And you're like, oh, fuck. Like, I know she's happy. I hear it in her voice. And I don't want you to screw this up for her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the first season, the first episode, I said that Roy was dickmatized. <laughs> Lorelai, like, Christopher kind of has that same effect on Lorelai. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call it dickmatized. No, but I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like she's under a spell of, like, she doesn't, it's almost like she has no control. She doesn't realize, like, what, that that he's being manipulated. She doesn't realize that, you know, he's bad for her. She sees things as harmless when they're not, you know? Yeah. I just, I, I, oh, I'm sweating. (laughs) Yes, Christopher Hayden brings out the worst in everybody. Oh my god. I'm so red. <laughs> she's ready to she's ready to cut a bitch, you guys. <laughs> Just so much. And that only gets worse, like, as the season goes on and what I call the Christopher effect takes place. Mm-hmm. Um like it's almost like she loses her mind when Christopher is involved. It's true. I don't get it. I don't get it. Are you going to need some kind of, like, tranquilizer or, you know, lots of alcohol when we discuss season seven? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need a couple of Z-Quils. <laughs> um, I was going to say Seekinol, but okay. <laughs> yeah, well, um, speaking of season seven, in this week's edition of the newsletter that you can get if you're a Patreon, if you're a patron and you sign up to our Patreon is what I meant to say. <laughs> Um, we're ranking some episodes, some winter and Christmas episodes, and I had to write the blurbs for some season seven episodes, Mm -hmm. and I can't tell you the amount of times that I had to just, like, close my screen and take a breath. I was gonna say, (laughs) take a break and walk away. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, I wrote those ones first so I can get them out of the way, but it took forever because I was just so angry. (laughs) So... Um, you can sign up for our Patreon and read those blurbs yes. and so much more um, if you would like. Um, one last thing I wanted to bring up for this episode that I think is really overlooked in the, in the overall trajectory of season, maybe not all of season five, but at least like in the in this episode at least, um, is Emily forgetting Friday night dinner. So not the Emily we know. And, I'm, and if I were Lorelai, 
I would have totally held that over her. Like, you oh, guilt me. and ever. You guilt me into coming here every goddamn Friday, and you forget. Yeah. I would have remembered that on my deathbed, to be honest with you. And I think it would have, I think it was nice that they like <laughs> took their shoes off and ordered pizza. It's just like that's honestly, you know. I think I would have done the same. Mm-hmm. Like it's like sleeping in a museum, you know? Yeah. It's like you're not really allowed to live in this house. Exactly. So I'm gonna. It's like a child when their parents are out of town, right? <laughs> so. But yeah, very uncharacteristic of Emily. I just wish there would have been some, like, acknowledgement between Lorelai and her parents later on of, like, well, at least I didn't forget dinner. At least I'm here, like you yeah. weren't last week. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anything but else? Alas. Um, I think that's it. Anything else on your end? No, I got my anger out. <laughs> now you're feeling a little bit, a little bit better, a little bit? <laughs> feeling like depleted now. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what I thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. Where can they find us? Uh, they can follow us on Twitters at Gilmore Podcast, on Instagram at Gilmore Girls Podcast. Um, you can email us GilmorePodcast at gmail dot com. And as Eleni said, you can join our Patreon by pledging a nominal fee each month and. In exchange, you will get exclusive members-only content, such as our email newsletter, as we mentioned. And we may or may not be gearing up to record um, our first bonus episode that will be exclusively on Patreon. So in order to listen to that episode any and any more we may record down the line, you will have to subscribe. So um, we hope to see a few of more, see a few more of you on there with the arrival of said bonus episodes but in the meantime we hope that you will at least subscribe and join our newsletter because it's fun and we um have fun putting it together i i assume we do it we, we do it separately in our own home so i have to assume we both have fun do we except for this week yes <laughs> except for that yes because you had to swallow your rage for christopher hayden as always yeah. um but if you would like to if you would like to become a patron if you haven't already, you can do so at patreon.com slash Podcast, And we shall see you in 2023. This is our last episode for 2022. And we hope you have a happy and safe holiday, no matter which holiday you're celebrating. Or even if you're not celebrating any holidays, just take some time for you. And we will mm-hmm. see you in 2023. Bye. Happy New Year. <laughs>